This is the story of my descent into Northern California's dark underbelly and how a little boy grew to maneuver, manipulate, and eventually escape from far beyond those borders. My name is Jason Farias, and this is my Madness Method. Hello everyone, this is Jason Farias, and this is my Madness Method. I started this podcast for the purpose of telling some crazy stories about things I've done, but things ultimately that that I lived through, you know, and I, I've always had fun telling these stories. And, and the first three installments were that fun, and, and they were headed in that direction that I imagined. And then episode four came along, and like I always knew that we were going to get to the mental illness aspect of this story, which is very important to me. But that's looking back. You know, the reality is I got there way faster than I anticipated. Episodes one and three were recorded and mastered in a week each. You know, done, quick. Episode four took two weeks, multiple versions, multiple revisions. And I'm two weeks from that one getting done. I'm not even sure when this episode five is going to even get to you guys. And how is this relevant? Well, episode four was the first time I said many of the realities that existed for me. Episode four made me verbalize and realize just how sick I was. Looking back, my heart breaks for the kid that made all the wrong decisions. This this little boy that lived within that wanted to belong to somebody. That, that just wanted one person that made him their whole life, yet somehow while having been showered with love, could only focus on what wasn't there. My grandmother always told me that God has a plan and he'll always put you right where you need to be. But thinking of this kid in his late teens and and early 20s and, and knowing who he was outwardly was no one that he really was on the inside. And realizing that the only time he felt seen was when he was providing for others and he could never ask for help. Coming to terms with the fact the only time all the voices in his head were singing the same song and providing expanses of time where peace existed was when he was high on meth. Otherwise, focus and calm just weren't achievable. Understanding he was completely alone in a house full of people and that he could never share how he really felt because he could no longer allow weakness to dictate any of his decisions. This kid was living multiple lives all at the same time, each with their own personality, and and that kid was me. How is this God's plan? How how was this where I was supposed to be? The difference between a villain and a hero is how you respond to pain and trauma. You see in catching Bobby with my girlfriend and and Ken playing a role, I didn't respond well. This can't be God's plan. It was all fun and games until then. We were having a great time living the life. And in one swift moment, this kid learned a life lesson that mostly dictated the next 10 years of his life. The lesson was you can't trust anyone. Can't trust people that claim to be your friends. You certainly can't trust women. You know, July 4th, 1996 was a monumental day for young Jason between What I now recognize to be some degree of mental illness that existed prior to drugs, 
with a heavy-handed sprinkle of methamphetamine. Any chance of getting him back was gone. Any part of reality that still existed for him was all twisted up. All that existed now was anger and resentment for literally everyone in his life. He began to systematically tear apart any relationship that existed, whether it was platonic friendships, physical relationships, long-term friendships, relationships with his family. He took his anger out on everyone in the fashion of self-sabotage of all things. That'll show him. All because of the outcome of his own decisions. All his poor decision-making was now everyone else's fault. How, how dare people that had no idea he was doing all this reckless, insane shit not thank him for it? How dare you not pick him over all else for everything you had done that they had no idea about? Sickness, man. It's, it's a real thing. Young Jason was charming, funny, interesting, well-spoken. You know, he was a good-looking kid, always in name brands, even when in shorts and flip-flops. He, uh, he had a tendency to always have on a nice watch, understated. Kept a pen that matched the watch and made sure to pull it out every time he got a chance to show folks how meticulous he was. He would always get a bracelet for the other wrist that was the same length as the watch. You know, for nights he was going out and needed to make sure everything was just right. Shoes always matched. What he was wearing. Never mixed brands or genres. You know, he was by no stretch a runway model, but for some reason, people flocked to him. He, he knew how to command a room, even though he was far from an imposing figure. And here it is where the problem lies. This was always the reaction he was looking for. This is where he knew what degree he had control and where folks would get evaluated for weakness and opportunity. Now, I get it. You know, this sounds very James Bondy, right? But Jay was very good at identifying how to control a room and whose perspectives he could control. He was doing it now to all his friends. He was doing it to any females in his life. And honestly, the girls in the, his life paid the price the most he would never put hands on a woman he was raised by women he would never be able to live with himself doing such a thing but he could spot daddy issues from a mile away and he would convince them he was a certain type of person he was their chameleon this is what he did now whatever they needed him to be is what he was but in the cruelest of fashions He'd say the most demeaning shit in the most pleasant way possible and somehow managed to have a different girl for each bill he had. They'd pay him before he even had to suggest that they did it. It, it. it never made sense the way that he was able to spoil a scenario. Even if they knew who he was and what he did for a living, knowing that he had money, they would buy food for the house, pay his car note, put him on their insurance, pay his rent it was obnoxious and the girls would still pay for it knowing he had a girlfriend and and this is where the waters were made muddy amongst the crew because a few of those girls were their girlfriends he would never hook up with a quote-unquote friend's girl but he would definitely present a scenario that would lead you to believe such so now he's making sure any female he meets is treated as he sees fit He'll even treat them like shit, then. That must be what they're looking for. 
in the beginning he would treat these girls like gold and they in turn treated him like shit so guess what when he flipped that and began treating them poorly all of a sudden he got all the attention he was hoping to get just being the nice guy and he's begun tearing the group from within by creating scenarios that don't exist and then interjecting folks into it all of this while keeping a smile on his face and behaving like there's no tomorrow, no consequences and no regard for life. I don't know if you're, you're into the MCU Marvel comics. Yeah. And Iron Man two, Tony takes his blood toxicity. And when he sees it's high, he accepts he's dying. and begins to act like an insane person. Well, guess what? My blood toxicity was through the roof. The Iron Man reference comes up at an interesting point in all this. Because I've always said that in an effort to be whatever was required of me to be accepted, whatever it was to make my friends as fast as possible before I had to move school again, or another girl had cheated on me, so I needed to find out what it was about the other dude that drew her away, I would always adopt a piece of something from someone that had what I wanted. Whether it was the popular kids in school that had all the friends, or the guy that my girl obviously thought was better than me. I would build a little piece of armor out of what I learned and I, I created my own suit of iron. I would build a new piece of this suit every time I was damaged until I could no longer be hurt. I built a new person out of the one I was in order to find peace. So Jay is quickly, and not to pat him on the back too much, quite effectively tearing apart his inner circle. All the while the inner circle seems to be growing. He isn't in the house much longer. Don't forget about Bearsit. That was the last day there. Now, now he's taken his money and the drugs and brought all the flow to a trickle. Everybody's dispersed. You know, everyone's living here and there, wherever they wound up. Jay's bouncing between girlfriend's parents' house and his own parents' house. I, mean, <laughs> I tried to get an apartment in a place called Olive Park there in Manteca, California. And, and we were moving in that day. And it was late into the night. We had gotten a few loads up, and the, the manager was this old-timer-looking dude. And I don't know if it was loud music or all the folks with the tats, but they didn't let us finish even moving in. Uh, that was, you know, I guess, par for the course at that time. I mean, all my buddies had tats all over, and, and they were kicked out. Like, we got kicked out before we even moved in. The manager stopped them from bringing his things in, and... We were told that you couldn't be there, and I mean, who's going to call the cops, right? Like, that's we don't, we don't need cops showing up. You never know who's going to come. They don't need to get involved here. We just quietly got our shit, and we left. Now, staying at the girlfriend's house, as you could imagine, I'm not exactly what a father would want their daughter dating. So being around there was far less frequent than being out of my parents' house, but you know, they had me pegged. They knew exactly who I was. They saw through it. Her father had been quite the active younger gentleman. He he had me pinned. He, he knew what I was about, and uh, he wasn't a fan. I don't blame him. I wouldn't have been a fan either. When it came to my relationships and meeting family members or whatever, I tried to play the role of the good kid that really did exist in there, but it was really the shithead version of me acting like the good version of me and not the true decent human being that I may have once been. 
staying there didn't happen a whole lot. Being out at my parents' house, you know, come and go as I please. You know, probably too old to be back at your parents' house, considering you moved out when you were 17. It's kind of a backslide, but hey, that's where we were. And in the town we were in, a pool hall had opened up. And mind you, we're from this little cow town. So there wasn't a lot going on. So a pool hall open in the town was like the thing. And to boot, this place was open 24 hours, which I don't know if you know this or not, but for a meth-addicted drug dealer, a 24-hour pool hall is fucking ideal. So we'd hang out there a lot. Me and the whole squad, we'd all be there. That was the one place we knew we could go and sort of set up shop. The owners of that place sat behind like a two-way mirrored office and i'll be honest with you we spent a lot of time there and i never saw those guys and we never tried to hide the fact that we were dealing dope out of there but we were probably good for business because the place stayed full and everybody was awake and we hung out there frequently dispersing only maybe when the sun came up or when uh we were what was perceived as out of drugs to do and there was this one night we were all sitting out back having smokes and bullshitting and and there was kind of this nerdy guy, you know, he was a short guy, maybe 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. At least that's how I remember it. Big, thick bottle cap glasses. Nerdy dude. Clothes were disheveled. Just kind of looked a mess. But he kept like, as the group would move around the little parking lot area we were smoking in, he'd kind of travel with us. And he kept talking and we all kind of rolled our eyes like, yo, who is this guy? Well... We all decided that, you know, hey, you know, it's time to go home. I think I'm done. I'm I'm bored here. I'm going to wrap it up. And and this dude pipes up, hey, I got my own place. We can all go back there. And we're like, oh, all right, weirdo. And that's when he chimes up, I got a fridge full of beer. Oh, shit, it's 3 a.m. All right, dude, let's go. So we were joking as we're following this dude to his house. And we were like, man, this kid's a putz. Like, does he not realize who he's inviting to his house? Like, we get to this kid's house. And I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the Dove Shack. They were wrapped up with Death Row Records. They came out with Snoop and all those guys. They had uh, a song called Summertime in the LBC. But the album cover of the Dove Shack CD was two or three guys standing on top of the carport of a house that I'm assuming they live at. And I swear to God, it was the house that we went to. And we all recognized it and had a pretty good chuckle out of it. But there was a lot of fun had at this house. It was a dump. And, and admittedly, we did wind up calling this kid Putz and that was his nickname. But he was our putz. You weren't allowed to fuck with putz, dude. He was our boy. He let us hang out. We had parties every single day there. It actually wound up, unbeknownst to everybody around, it wound up becoming my stash house. I didn't tell anybody where it was. Under the carport was a door to the right that went in the house and a door straight in that went into the laundry room. And that door into that laundry room actually had access up to the attic. That That's where I kept everything stored. And nobody ever found out. It was very interesting. The partying at Putts got a little too out of control. Bobby and I feuding as we were at this point. He was very vocal around town about it. You know, talking to the people I sold dope to was just putting salt all over my name. People knew who I was, and they assumed that something was going down. Like, honestly, the beef between me and this dude was all over town. Everybody knew about it. It was a very interesting situation. It was also bringing a lot of heat. 
Bobby did a lot of talking. I think he was just trying to draw me out, which was interesting because I wasn't in hiding by any degree. I just wasn't interested in the problems. Like his problem with me wasn't my problem. I wasn't having the problems that he was having. But ultimately what wound up happening is his family came and saw me one day. His dad drove a vet. It was this dark colored vet. It was nice. At the time, it seemed a little cheesy. Had dice painted on the back of it. Now, shit, I'd love to have a vet like that. It was pretty clean. We went for a ride. And they told me they were cutting me off because it's just too loud. The things that are going on, whether it was me or Bobby that was stirring up all the shit, the problem had made it all the way back to them out in the Bay Area. They've heard about it. It's too much. I'm cut off. What's crazy is you always hear about these kind of scenarios and it's like, oh, you know, you never get out. When it's self-preservation and they know that it's kind of amicable, they just told me, hey, man, we, we can't fuck with you anymore. Here's your last bit and we're done. I just had to accept it. And that was fine by me. By this point, we had started smoking the drugs. We started using bubbles, glass pipes. And, you know, it's actually a much easier way to test your dope than the way we were doing it. Because if you put a little in a glass pipe and you blow through it when it's hot, if your finger turns white, that's all the cut. Once it stops doing that, you're down to the good shit. Much easier way to test. I mean, we were smoking quarter to a half ounce a night. We were doing a lot of dope. Now, mind you, you're talking six, seven people, eight people. If the party's really going, a dozen people. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, man. If I'm getting high, everybody's getting high. But now I'm cut off. That sends the spiral even harder. So I'm self-sabotaging every relationship I've got now. But now the only thing that kept me in the center of this is now gone. And I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this new piece of information. Like, how am I going to continue to control the narrative if I no longer have access to the control? That was a tough night. I mean, admittedly, I, I feared for my life. When he picked me up, I thought, you know, there's only one way that this goes. When he started having the discussion that we can no longer do business, I thought, well, shit, we are way out on a country road. He's getting me high as hell while we're driving. I figured it was it. So we, we walked away. I finished selling off what I had. I played my part. I thought I'd give sobriety a shot. Maybe I'd give a real relationship a go, right? This girl's solid. Her parents don't like me, which means she's got good parents. But there, there's the riff amongst the friends is where I needed it to be because they questioned everything I was doing. They trusted nothing I was doing. And that's what I wanted because in not trusting me, they didn't trust each other. We had gotten to the point when they started figuring out a little bit and I, I saw them getting hip to the game. And I, I felt that they were getting ready to call me on my bullshit. And I just kept getting everybody high and let's get high and let's get high and let's get high. Until I pushed their addiction to where mine was, because mine was out of control. I visualize all these scenarios, you know, all all the routines of 
pitting one person against another and allowing friends to think that their girls are doing something with me on the side and knowing that they're not going to do a lot about it because I'm their access to drugs and the inability to trust for everybody around me was the plan. I'd love to go into all these crazy details of, oh, here was the scheme, but that's not what it was. It was little, little cuts. Like I, I tore my team apart with little tiny cuts. So it bled to death. It's a lot to live with. Fearing for my life because, you know, it, it, it continued even after they came out and they told me you're cut off, bro. We're not fucking with you anymore. To know that the noise I was making in the Central Valley was making it out to the Bay Area means that uh, there was a lot going on. I had started doing business with this guy, Lorenzo. Now, Lorenzo was supposed to be Bobby's new hookup. And uh, ultimately, I think Lorenzo was actually brought around to identify me and then do something to me. But Lorenzo and I got to talking one day. We were uh, out front of Jeff's house and Lorenzo pulls up and he's in his truck. My, my crazy kicked in. I knew someone, right? He's like, hey, man, why don't why don't we go for a ride? Let's, you know, whatever. I, I don't really remember what the scenario was that got us. But I was like, yeah, fuck it, let's go. And I, I knew as soon as I got in the car that something wasn't okay. I needed, in a case of self-preservation, I started telling this dude stories that he and I were both a part of, as though I was reminiscing with him. And this dude had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. But this is the type of weird shit I did to fuck with people. I would tell stories so matter of fact and so believable. It freaked him the fuck out enough that he kind of like shook his head and he was like, you're fucking insane, bro. He and I actually wound up having a great conversation. Like I always seem to do with these people that either they were sent to do something to me or I was just completely batshit crazy and poisoned. But, you know, there was always guns and there was always drugs and there was always scary people. So my guess is, is that there wasn't just a bunch of people standing around in line waiting to be my friend. With that, getting cut off from the Bay Area contact left me with Lorenzo as the option. And that was really when things went really dark between me and Bobby, because now I had taken his original access to drugs. I had now befriended his new access to drugs. It got real dark. My guess is in hindsight that, you know, he was just going through the same shit I was I look back and I think about uh, everything that we had done. And I, I saw him as this, eventually as this nemesis and this enemy. And he was probably nobody any different than me, just doing the best he could. And this fucking dude, meaning me at the time, this fucking guy kept taking and taking and taking from this guy. I took his family contact away from him. I took his new contact away from him. I kept pulling the rug out of under him and... Actually, I'm I'm sitting here having the epiphany as we speak, starting to realize why it got so bad between he and I, because I just kept taking everything from him. And all of it was because I thought I was just doing the self-preservation thing, and I was so mad at everybody that everybody was going to pay the price, and this is what that 
mental illness, that that sickness. I, I saw nothing of this going on around me. It just all felt so natural. Everybody loves Jay. Everybody loves Jay. And if you don't, you will. And if you don't, you certainly will. That concludes this chapter of The Madness. If you're finding this podcast entertaining and you're listening along with me, please subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jason Farias, and this is my Madness Method.